Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show is uh, Professor Valerie Mathis. She's a professor emerita at City College of San Francisco and has written or edited nine books, including Helen Hunt Jackson and her Indian Reform Legacy, and divinely guided the California work of the Women's National Indian Association. Valerie, thanks for being on History 605. Thank you. And my 10th book came out last year on uh, a biography of Amelia Stone Quentin, co-founder of the WNIA. Okay. Your body of work is kind of what's uh, what the conversation is about today. So it, it's uh, richer and richer all the time with your 10th book joining the, joining the fray. So great. What I wanted to do today then, I think, and what alerted me to your work was an article that you published in the summer of 2021 about Charles Painter. But as I right. dove into what you were doing, I saw, well, uh, he's just one person among many, and the, the many were among uh, Helen Hunt Jackson and uh, a lot of women at the, at the late latter part of the 19th century who had a primary concern for the welfare of of Indians. And uh, I began to get really curious about them. And I thought that we would kind of do a show about that wider scope of things, not uh, just one or two people in particular, but the whole movement, as it were. Um, And you've graciously um, agreed to come on the show. So I appreciate that. You're very welcome. I just like to get my material out there. Yeah, well, and most people who've who've spent a labor of uh, many years on such a thing certainly do. And so the it strikes me that this 19th century social movement, often led and organized by women to assimilate Native Americans into American society, is something that really, in the early 21st century, puzzles us in a lot of ways. And it strikes me that you're the you're the person to speak to about this. I'm wondering if you can share with us kind of how you got started in in the Women's National Indian Association and their fellow travelers and, and what you, what drew you to them. Well, it's an interesting story. When I started teaching um, a two-semester history of the American Indians in 1969, I became interested particularly in Helen Hunt Jackson. So at age 50, when I decided to get a Ph.D., hmm. um, I wrote my dissertation on her, but I didn't have enough material for a full dissertation. So I asked myself, did she have an impact on any other reformers? 
and I found that she markedly had an impact on um, the Women's National Indian Association, the Indian Rights Association, and Lake Mohawk. So I wrote a couple chapters on them, and that just started me on the road to um, writing about them. And actually, I let I let Helen Hunt Jackson direct my um, writing. For example. On her deathbed, Charles Painter came to visit her in San Francisco and promised to carry on her legacy. So that introduced me to Painter, who then spent 11 months in 1891 surveying and setting aside Indian reservations for the Mission Indians. And Helen Hood Jackson personally knew uh, Quinton, the co-founder of the WNIA, had helped her on their petition drives, and they had written letters, and they'd actually... Uh, spend some time together. So that has kind of directed my writing. Mm -hmm. Ellen Hood Jackson's kind of leading me by the hand. And the unusual thing about this is every person I have written about, I really like. Yeah. And I don't think biographers can always say that. And I would love to have met these people. Right. Well, they're certainly an interesting cast of characters. And I, I wonder... I mean, if I were to spend some time with them, and you would probably have a zillion questions, but I, I guess one of the things I would ask them is, what drew them to have this concern, and what drew them to design the solutions that they made? And I guess maybe we should back up for a second and just kind of spell out what the concern was that they had about Indians at the, uh, at, in the late 19th century. In order to truly understand that, one has to be very familiar with Father uh, Francis Paul Pruca's writings. He wrote about these evangelical Christians, um, about the four organizations that I write about. Mm -hmm. And what happened is after the Civil War, there was so much war, warfare, grants, Indian policy didn't seem to work. So in 1879, Standing Bear's tour kind of sparked things, but ironically, the WNIA was founded two years before Standing Bear, and it grew out of a religious group, uh, the Women's Home Missionary Society. So this kind of all gelled together. So what is drawing this is, I believe, the strong evangelical belief in promoting the government's assimilationist policy. And unfortunately, because assimilation is viewed as very negative, it's difficult to get published on these topics. Uh, and I'm forever having to defend my people because my way of writing, I'm narrative, I'm not analytical. I present the facts, I use their letters, their writings, and I let my readers make an opinion. So I struggle just to even get published in many cases because it's an, you know, it's an assimilationist group. Right. But they did a great deal. For example, and I know more about the WNA than the others, they founded more than 60 missionary stations from Florida to California. They bought reservation land for the Seminole. And within these uh, mission stations, they paid for a missionary they, um, my dog's barking. They paid for a missionary. They built a missionary cottage. They built schools. Yeah. They built hospitals, full range hospitals. 
And so I'm trying to get that legacy out more than anything else. Okay. So this is why I write all these articles. Right. Well, yes, we, we, you mentioned schools, certainly the Carlisle, the school of Carlisle is probably the most famous or infamous school, but people don't realize that schools were built where the students were, where the Indian students were. um, Right. In many cases. Uh, so you brought up Standing Bear. The listeners of this podcast will will recall we've talked about him before in a previous episode with uh, Joseph Storita's book on Standing Bear. You you wrote a book on Standing Bear, but you I did. you also helpfully say you know some of this movement started before he became a celebrity, for lack of a better term. He became fam- famous for his uh, situation and what was happening to him and the Ponca. What was the instigation of their origins? What really prompted them well, to organize? I just found this out a couple of years ago. When I when I put together my second anthology on the WNIA, I had a young man by the name of John Rhea, who unfortunately is deceased, do an article for me. And he's the one who has provided enough evidence to prove, in fact, that the WNIA grew out of this women's missionary society uh, that was founded in uh, Philadelphia's First Baptist Church in 1877, and they worked with the uh, the Chicago group of uh, women home missionary people. And so it was just an interest of saving women and children that got the WNIA going, and then they moved away so all of the WNIA institutional history claims that they were founded in 1879, when in fact they were actually founded two years earlier, before Standing Bear. I see. And at the time of the Standing Bear controversy, there were no other organizations. The WNI was just, you know, organ- organizing themselves. So it's the Boston Indian Citizenship Committee that funded uh, Standing Bear, and I did an article on them for the uh, Boston Historical Review. The IRA and Lake Mohant had not been formed yet. So it was this small group of very well-connected lawyers and businessmen, including the governor of Massachusetts, um, who listened to Tibbles as he gave his speech and directed the Standing Bear tour, and, it, you know, Boston is kind of the center of all kinds of reform movement. Yeah. So that just kind of gelled everything. And then the government got involved. Henry Lauren Dawes got involved. And it just took off. Yeah. And then along comes the Indian Rights Association in 1882 in December. And when they formed, they allowed the women to give up a lot of their political work and return to missionary work. And that's when they began to establish... Um, their missions, their first missions were um, uh, in Indian territory among the Oto and the, and the Ponca. Um, but what's important about the IRA is that they had this amazing lobbyist, Charles C. Painter, who not only wrote legislation, but pushed it through, stopped mm-hmm. legislation. He was an incredibly powerful individual who had been totally neglected and that's why I just honed in on him. Yeah. And I found him amazing. Yeah. And he wrote all kinds of 
incredibly lengthy pamphlets. Um, and then once a year, they would gather at Lake Mohonk, and Painter had been at Lake Mohonk from the very beginning. They were all invited. I mean, all the people that attended Lake Mohonk were personally invited by the founder, Smiley, who was a Quaker. And because Quakers believe that women are equal to men in many respects, the WNIA women were invited. And okay. uh, Clinton goes, Lake Mohawk is founded in 1883. She's there in 1885 and goes to every meeting. And where is Lake Mohawk? Is this in New York? Yes, Lake Mohawk is uh, It's now a resort. The, the Smiley family still owns it. Uh, it's... Uh, near New Paltz, New York, 90 miles from uh, um, New York City, and I, I stayed a night there. It is an amazing place, mm. and every year, at his total expense, he paid for everything, all these reformers came, uh, Indian commissioners. Wow. Um, Who paid for this, everybody to come? There? Oh, Smiley paid Smiley. for everything. Okay. He and his brother had founded this, mm-hmm. and it was... He was on the board of Indian commissioners, and I know one of your comments was that uh, someone disapproved of the board of Indian commissioners. Yeah. I very much favor it because not only was Smiley on the board, and because the board did not have enough time to take care of the situations and the issues, he offered his resort for these people to come and have another board meeting, and the important thing is that Amelia Stone Quinton was able to attend these board meetings and get her word across, too. So I really see a great deal of positive things on the Board of Indian Commissioners. Right. You mentioned the IRA. Does that stand for Yeah, the, the Indian Rights Association. Right. And so could you formulate a an end goal? What were they seeking to give uh, to make sure that the Bill of Rights applied to all the Indians, or how did they how did they envision that? Well, Herbert Welsh, who was founder of the IRA or one of the longtime directors of it, uh, was a wealthy man. His father had been a diplomat. I think he'd been at the court of St. James. His uncle had been a member of the Board of Indian Commissioners. And I'm afraid he was just a little bit much too enthusiastic and wanted to push the Dawes Act and assimilate the Indians a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. So whereas my WNI women aren't as aggressive, he does come across as aggressive. And he, like many of the other reformers, thought they knew the answer, the solution to the Indian question. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the only solution is the Indians wanted to be left alone. Right. But right. that's not going to happen because you have to keep in mind what's going on in America at the time. The immigrants are facing this exact same challenge. And the idea was this melting pot. Mm-hmm. And now we know this melting pot has cracks in it. Mary Stockwell, who I had on about her book about President Grant's Indian policy, she she mentions that too, is that the melting pot and the immigrants are coming. The land is um, uh, seen as key to the success of the growing population. Exactly. And so those on the land, originally on the land, the, the Lakota or whatever tribe you're talking about is is 
really caught in a tough spot. And oh, they are. And actually, the as a result of the Dawes Act, the Indians lost nine oh million acres of right. land. Right. Uh, yes, it was. And unfortunately, Clinton supported the Dawes Act, as did most of the reformers. Um, one one of the reformers who's really quite fascinating. His name is James Bradley Fair. He was a Harvard Law professor, and I did an article on him for the uh, Massachusetts Historical Review. He didn't get along with Dawes, and he thought Dawes's bill did not protect the Indians legally enough, so he wrote his own legislation, which Dawes presented uh, as agreed, but Dawes made sure it was never, um, never passed Congress. So the Dawes Act could have been markedly improved had Fair's bill been passed. So there's dissension yeah. within the group. You know, not everyone, and, and Bland's organization really opposed all of this. So there was terrible dissension. Yeah, it, it all kind of gets caught up in Washington politics, doesn't it? Exactly, and it's like one size fits all. does not work anywhere. Oh, but the interesting thing about the WNIA, which I probably don't push enough, is that although they founded schools, there's never that horrible um, misuse and abuse of the students. Um, and they founded schools only in places where the federal government didn't have them. So, for example, I did a lot of work on the Greenville School in Northern California. Mm -hmm. um, and the parents were allowed to attend, and Clinton, um, like a mother hen, visited all the time. That was her favorite mission. And she made sure that things were run well. She made sure that the school got the money they want, because she would go to Washington, D.C., and pound on the desk of the Indian Commissioner or the Secretary of the Interior and get what she wanted. Okay. So they were working locally, but involved nationally to get the local yes. issues to work. Yes. Yeah. What they, uh, what they did is they were formed in Philadelphia, and within a year or so, Quinton uh, went outside and she began forming um, auxiliaries until there were auxiliaries all across the country. I have no idea how many there were. I have no idea how many women, but um, most states had their own. For example, uh, the Massachusetts Indian Association had a branch in Cambridge, but had all kinds of other little branches. Uh, the Connecticut Indian Association was in Hartford, but it had other little branches. And that was true across the country. And these were incredibly powerful. But also, the WNIA was closely connected to the WCTU, partially because Quinton had been an organizer for the... Um, Brooklyn WCTU. And that is the, and so the Women's Christian Temperance Union. So The Women's Christian Temperance Union, yes. 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 So a lot of and these I members are in both. Yes, they are. But interestingly enough, WCTU members seem to want suffrage, but the WNIA stays totally away from suffrage. And I've not ever had the opportunity or found enough material to delve into that. But that's an interesting thing about them. They just avoid that like the plague. Interesting. Well, I think... It is interesting. 
So the WCTU, when you say they wanted suffrage, they wanted suffrage for themselves because women can't vote yet. That's true. Right. But so, also, um, there's a new book by Lapis, uh, which I was a peer reader on, a wonderful book, uh-huh. on uh, the WCTU and its Indian members. And it's really quite, it's quite fascinating, actually, what he was able to find. Um, and I, I would love to have someone do comparisons between the WNIA and the WCTU. It's not something that I'm going to tackle. Yeah. But there's so many more topics out there that can be covered. Right. Well, one of the aspects of this that I hope we can go into is you mentioned that it arises out of a missionary work. Right. And I think, again, we're, we're, when Americans think of missionary work, they don't necessarily think of uh, missionary within the United States. Um, right. It's, it's going off to some other uh, foreign country, but... If you're in Philadelphia or Boston or something and you're thinking about the West uh, in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, that, that's very much missionary work. So who are some of these um, missionaries who came out West and particularly to the Dakotas or Dakota Territory uh, that might have been sponsored by the WNIA? There were, uh, for each one of their missions, and there were over 60 of them, they would sponsor um, a missionary. And then what they would do, um, they would pay them, they would support them, and Quentin always came to visit at least once. Um, I've got an article, hopefully, that'll get published in Montana on her visit to um, the Pygon mission. Uh, And then these missionaries, because Quentin was the chair of the missionary committee, they would send her letters explaining what was going on in the mission. And then Quentin would, in turn, have these letters published in the Indians' uh, Friend, which was their monthly magazine. So it's fascinating reading. Quentin is kind of a conduit. So she makes sure that she gets published only what she wants to get published. So it kind of goes through her. Um, so we don't always get a total true story, and the Indian's friend never publishes negative material. Mm-hmm. So there's just that whole side is just not there. Um, but yes, she right. does. She visits all these missionaries at least once, and then what happens is once this mission is fully uh, established, it's turned over to a local missionary society working in the area, whether it's the Baptist. In California, almost everything went to the Moravian Church, but it could be the Methodist or the Baptist, for example. Um, a couple of the WNI missions in New Mexico were handed over to the Baptist, mm-hmm. and then they were turned over for a dollar with the land that, the, that Quentin had gotten from the government and with all the facilities. And sometimes these missions would be many thousands of dollars. Uh, for example, in Jewett, New Mexico, they built a hospital that was two or $3,000 supported by uh, New York and Connecticut and Massachusetts members. And so the WNI spent extraordinary amount of money funding these things and turning them over. In your research? And I'm sure there were bad things that happened. But as I said, you know, unless you actually get letters, and that's a problem. There's not a lot of letters of these uh, women. 
it's just not available out there. Right. I'm thinking of South Dakota, the Thomas Riggs or Mary Collins, who was a missionary. Yes, exactly. Were they supported by the WNIA? Exactly, they were. Okay. And actually, uh, Smiley supported uh, Riggs. Their very first meeting, if you want to call it, of Lake Mohonk was on the Great Sioux Reservation with Riggs and and a number of other ministers, and that's when Smiley decided he was going to create this organization. Painter was also there at the time. Okay. So, yes, ministers played an extraordinary role at Lake Mohonk and in all this reform. And the WNIA on their their list of um, uh, supporters had the most prominent ministers. So, yes, it's very much an evangelical religious movement, as uh, Father Pruka describes it in all his writings. Right. Was Thomas Riggs kind of admired by these people, that he was doing amazing work and that that we should support him or or that uh, they wanted to support him that way? You know, I don't know a great deal about Thomas Riggs. It's only that one visit. Okay. And, uh, you know, I don't know him through uh, Quentin because I don't think she ever met him. But she did meet, for example, um, William Henry Henry Wayland, who was a Moravian minister. And uh, there are hundreds of letters from her to him at the Huntington Library. That mm. one minister I happen to know closely. I've written an article that hasn't been published yet. But, uh, and also when Quentin traveled across the country on these organizational tours, she would stop and give talks in ministers' homes and in churches. So she depended very heavily upon the religious community. Even though she was a Baptist, she depended upon all Protestant groups. Okay. Well, that was that's a good segue into my next question. You mentioned the term Protestant. What are the what are the Catholics doing? Are they a part of these organizations, or they have their own? Well, the, yes. This was this late nineteenth century Indian Reform movement was totally Protestant. The Catholics were pretty much left out, as Father Pruka points out. Even though the Catholics had established a lot of missions, when they handed out during Grant's peace policy, when they handed out uh, reservations, the Catholics only got a handful, and they complained. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was not even a Catholic member of the Board of Indian Commissioners till much later, and Catholics were never, you know, they, they did not go to Lake Mohawk. This was a Protestant movement. Right. Because you have to keep in mind that the country at that time was heavily Protestant. Right. Um, and... If I remember correctly, you've got these immigrants from northern, or from eastern and southern Europe. They're beginning to uh, come in. They're Catholic. They're Jewish, etc. And there's kind of a strong anti-immigrant feeling, and maybe that all figures in. I've never looked into that, but that's a possibility. But no, the Catholics were left out. Right. I think I recall reading that Red Cloud was upset. He he preferred the Catholics. I think he exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I think the Episcopalians got Pine Ridge, and he was upset about that. He wanted the black robes, as he said. Or the... Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, you know, Father DeSmet and, yeah. and many of the others, and of course, uh, uh, Father Kino and, and all the other uh, Jesuits in Arizona and New Mexico. But that was under Spanish control. Um, and there was a lot of contention, I think, 
you know, between the Protestants and the Catholics, the Know Nothing Party, etc., that began to emerge. And so uh, it it was very definitely a Protestant and an evangelical one. Mm-hmm. Can you describe a little bit about their theology? So um, Charles Painter or Helen Hunt Jackson, these, how did they view... I mean, it strikes me that ultimately you wouldn't, if you wanted to evangelize to a population, your going assumption is that they are human beings. Right. Right? Did they preach that, literally? I mean, they... they... Well, first of all, let me say that Helen Hunt Jackson does not fit the pattern. Okay. She is not an evangelical... She, her father was a minister, she married, her second husband was a Quaker. That does not figure in, and in her writings, she extolled the work of the Franciscans. So she does not fit that pattern at all. Um, religion is never a part of her thing. Even though she was religion, you know, raised in a religious family, because she married, her second husband was a Quaker, um, she was accused of not being religious because she would much prefer to ride around with uh, William Jackson uh, on Sundays rather than go to church. So, and she, as I said, extols the Franciscan role um, that they played among the Indians. So she doesn't fit that pattern at all. Her main goal was to protect Indian land, and that is why Painter spent so much time surveying and establishing reservations in Southern California, which still exist today. Okay. And this was 1891. Um, but as to the rest, you know, I really, I'm not a religious scholar. I don't have a great deal of background in it. I've not really looked at it. I do know for a fact that uh, Quentin was, I would call her a bit over the board Baptist, as was uh, her co-founder, Mary Lucinda Bonney. Painter was very religious uh, and attended Williams College um, in uh, Massachusetts. That is something I have not really gone into, and I'm having trouble trying to, to grasp that because one article I'm trying to do on Montana, they want me to do that, and uh, that's not my interest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, in their letters and their writings, they don't necessarily get, no, they get don't too come, theological. No, you know? Okay. No, it is very interesting. Quentin's letters, and I've probably got at least four or five hundred of them, mostly written to uh, um, Wayland, don't go in that. But what she does do, she is very anti Catholic. Mm-hmm. And so is. William Henry Wayland, and I've got some great quotes on that. That's the only time she actually goes into religion. You know, she'll, if a mission fails, she says, oh, the Catholics did it. But that's really about the only thing that she does in her letters. Uh, And uh, um, Painter's letters, the only letters that I could find, the bulk of his letters are in the Indian Rights Association papers in Philadelphia, and they're all business, and they're mostly to uh, um, Herbert Welsh. Now, I did find maybe a dozen or so others, but they're not, they don't go into religion. As a matter of fact, I know nothing about painters 
wife, except she fell down the stairs once. I know he had a son. He doesn't mention personal stuff in his letters at all. Okay. So there's a terrible dearth of information on all these people. They leave it out. Or they're in letters I can't find. Right, right. Or, you know, are not available. Yeah, you, you have your article in 2021 with our journal, Charles C. Painter's How We Punish Our Allies. He's He's spent a considerable amount of effort uh, not only in California, but helping out the or defending and working for the Sisson and Wapenin, um to keep their reservation and get get yeah. uh, land yeah. rights done. And what what drew him to working with uh, Gabriel Renville? And he worked with everybody. That was his job. Okay. And uh, Renville came to Washington D.C. to him. Oh. And he carried that on. So what Painter did is he made annual tours all over the country, his, his, and he writes these uh, incredible write-ups of his tour. One was 100 pages. He goes wherever there's an issue. He spent some time in North Carolina about the education because they, uh, the government closed a really good school that the Cherokee wanted. So... These things come to him, and he goes and investigates. So he goes everywhere in the country, hmm. everywhere. Um, that's his role. He's the lobbyist. Um, it's, it's, you know, quite amazing when they were trying to shut down the Utes. He went and spent some time among the Utes. He, met, he spent some time among the Blackfeet, uh, the Cherokee, um, a lot of time in Indian Territory, a lot of time in California. So that was his job. Okay. And he also went to great lengths to defend agents that were good agents, but he would go after bad agents with a vengeance. Okay. So you mean like Department of Interior Indian agents? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And he comes across as a extremely reasonable and decent man as i said he's one of the one of the my subjects i would love to shake his hands and say you did a really good job thank you yeah well let's let's uh, close with with that then i one of my questions is how do you how do you assess the impact of the ira the the nwi or the wnia um what's the you know looking at it 100, 120 years later, what might you say to them about the work that they did, the good and the bad well, and think, so forth? Yeah, I think all in all, they did a good job. I know from my point of view that these people were not just simply do-gooders. They set out to do what they thought was right. And they markedly, at least the WNA, helped people from starving. For example, I just finished an article for New Mexico Historical Review, hoping they'll publish it, on this amazing woman, Mary Louise Eldridge, who spent some 30 years on the reservation. She would go out by herself, sometimes with an interpreter, and vaccinate these Indians. She would feed them. It was amazing what these women did. So I can personally attest to the fact that the women that I've written about, Louise, uh, Mary Louise Eldridge, uh, Constant Goddard Du Bois, who went to California and took photographs and did um, ethnological studies of the Luthanio and other Indians, 
they left behind a legacy beyond their work. For mm. example, uh, on the Navajo Reservation, there are actually Indians called Eldridge, and she directed a, um, a ditch from the San Juan River that's called the Cambridge Ditch, and it's still in existence, which watered um, Indian uh, Navajo farms. So I can attest to at least the women I've written about, mm -hmm. what they've done. Mm -hmm. And as for Helen Hunt Jackson, her um, Century of Dishonor and Ramona, I think, got the Indian issue out to the public. That was important. Uh, Ramona is still in print. Um, so yeah. I would say yes. As to the Boston Citizenship Committee, they were a short-lived group, but they backed Standing Bear, which was extremely important, and the Indians were declared, um, you know, people in the sense of the law. The IRA had paid or so, and the Lake Mohonk drew everyone together. So, yes, I see them as having left behind a legacy. The negative thing is that they all pushed the Dawes Act. That is a very negative thing. Yeah. The rest of the things I think were positive. Many of them were positive. Well, Valerie, thank you very much for coming on the show and, and uh, certainly uh, a long career of looking into these uh, many and very fascinating people who we, we look at them like we uh, said at the beginning. We kind of wonder what, how uh, they thought they were doing things well, but there were some things I think, like we said, at the local level were probably effective, appropriate, and done, but the Washington politics may have been what did it all in in the Dawes Act. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Valerie, thanks for coming on History 605. Well, thank you so very much. I appreciate it. Anytime you want to call me back, I'll be more than happy to join you. Okay, thanks. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.